I ask you this Sunday morning, what are you wearing? What have you put on? I remember back when I was in high school, one particular morning I rushed to school and in my first class I'm seated there and the person behind me made the comment, so you wear medium. I thought, well, that's kind of strange. I, I didn't respond, just kind of sat there. And then I heard the person say, medium's a good size. And then I realized something's up. So I turned and I asked him, well, what, what are you talking about medium? He says, you've got your shirt inside out. <laughs> See, when we're in a rush, sometimes we don't consider what we're wearing or how we're wearing what we're wearing. And we're learning as believers and followers of Jesus Christ that we're supposed to put on in our lives qualities and actions that reflect Jesus' influence. That you can see that by what we wear, by what we take off, put off what we put on. And that's not something that you simply do once in your life and it's settled for the rest of your life. That's something that day by day we actively do in order to reveal the relationship that we have with Jesus Christ. Remember how Paul described it to the believers in the city of Colossae in Colossians 3. He's trying to encourage them to dress appropriately. And he says this, and I hope it will remind us also of his influence with our, within our lives. Reading from verse 9, do not lie to one another, given an example of something you put off, but seeing that you have put off the old self, the old ways, or even more descriptively, the ways of the world. You, you put that off, he says, with its practices, and in, in its place you have put on the new self, a new approach to life, a, a life that reflects Jesus, which he adds, which is being renewed. And the verb there is emphasizing an ongoing renewal, is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator, after the image of Jesus. And so, as Paul writes to them, and even as he would write to us, he would say, now because of your relationship with Jesus, there are some things you put off, there are some things you put on. Now, we've been discussing the last couple of weeks, you know, how that works. I mean, it's one thing for me to say that, it's something else for us to actively do that. Well, what do we do? Well, let's be reminded, it starts and ends with Jesus, we choose to relate to Jesus for who he is. I mean, if you have a Bible, you can see that alluded to in Colossians 3. He says, you seek the things above where Christ is, verse 1. Verse 2, you direct your thoughts on what's above. You, you fix your mind on what's above. See, you're relating to Jesus for who he is. And as that becomes a part of what you do... You then allow the peace of Christ to rule your hearts. That's verse 15. God's given us his Holy Spirit so that he can even influence our understanding of the direction we go by the peace he manifests within. See, when I put on the wrong thing, it 
God has a way of getting my attention. One of the ways he does that is the peace that he wants to bestow is disrupted. We can walk in his peace. We can allow the peace of Christ to rule our hearts. But Paul, in the 16th verse, says you also need to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. See, the peace of the Lord can guide me, but it's, it's the word of the Lord that illumines the path so clearly in front of me that there's really little question about what I should be wearing. When we don't go to the word of Christ, sometimes the world confuses us so that we find ourselves wearing things that we should not, simply because we've not allowed the word of Christ to reside within our hearts. And as the Spirit of the Lord is leading us and the Word of the Lord is open before us, then Paul's right. You are able to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. That you can then act in a way that results in you wearing the right garments, spiritually speaking. Now, this is where we've been the past two weeks This morning, I want us to think in terms of how does this relate to husbands and wives? Now, if you were with us last Sunday, I warned you, this is where we're going, because by the way, that's where Paul takes us. You get to verses 18 and 19, and he specifically addresses husbands and wives. So how does wearing the right clothing, as Paul would characterize it, find its way into the marriage relationship between a husband and a wife. Well, before we get to verses 18 and 19, let's get very practical for just a quick moment. If you look at how Paul tries to direct our hearts and minds toward wearing the appropriate garments, you'll realize everything that he has to say in general has a very specific application when it comes to the relationship between a husband and a wife. There are some things in a marriage relationship you should not put on. You just shouldn't. If you want a healthy marriage. There's some things you know you have to take off consistently for the sake of your marriage. Now, we've looked at some of what Paul describes previously, but come back to it and think of it, as I said, specifically in terms of the marriage relationship between a husband and a wife. Go back to Colossians 3, verse 5, where Paul begins to identify some of the things that need to be put off. Listen to what he says. Put to death. That's a strong language. He says, you're going to look at this as as if it's dead to you now. You're not going to move in that direction anymore. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Then he gives some examples. Sexual immorality. Now, let me stop there. This particular term in the language of Paul's day is the Greek word pornea from which we have in English the basis of the word pornography, same root of the word. In Paul's day, this word, however, basically refers to any type of sexual activity that's outside the creator's design. 
Now, if you're new to attending church or new to the Bible, let me help you realize that the Bible explains to us that God, the creator, actually designed mankind to express sexuality in a very specific way. That indeed all sexual activity was to be reserved to a marriage relationship that's shared between a man and a woman. That's the scope that the Bible describes as the wisdom of the creator. And when Paul says you need to put to death pornea or sexual immorality, what he's referring to would be anything that's outside that scope. Now think about this in terms of the practicality of a marriage relationship. I can't imagine anything more devastating to the bond between a husband and a wife if one of the spouses becomes unfaithful, moves toward infidelity, allows his or her sexual desires to move them outside the wisdom of what God defined. It's devastating to a marriage. Now let me say... I think the power of Christ and the love of Christ even has the capacity to bring couples through that betrayal. But let's not deny just how destructive this is. And so Paul would say, as you look at your marriage relationship, you put to death sexual immorality. You you don't bring it into your home. You don't put it on. You know Better than that, it should not characterize your life, nor the desires that feed it. He carries the thought on. He says, um, let me look at it. He, he says you also need to put to death not just sexual immorality, but also uh, impurity, passion, evil desire. Now, again, realize when he writes this, he's writing to Christians in general. But this morning, I want you to think about it in terms of your marriage relationship in specific. That there are some things we just don't put on for the sake of our marriage. Now, he adds to this list also just a differing thought He says, also, you put off or put to death covetousness. Now, when was the last time you used that word in a conversation? Not a term we use with any frequency. The word in Paul's day emphasizes insatiable desire. Just this drive within us that never seems to be satisfied. Now, I mention this in the context of marriage because statistics tell us another driving factor toward divorce isn't just infidelity alone. Oftentimes, what contributes to a marriage falling apart is they're fighting over finances in particular, the struggle over finances. And I wonder if at times what contributes to that is in our minds, we elevate the pursuit of things as if life is in a nicer house, a newer car, or the latest clothing trends, that we have to have these things, and we find ourselves chasing after these things, and it drives our expenses higher and higher and higher, 
And then a husband and a wife are left to contend with how do we solve this? Well, Paul would say the way you solve it is you're, you're not driven by insatiable desire for more. You don't have to go there. Now, that's not to say you can't have nice things, but you don't live for them. You don't allow covetousness to become characteristic of your life. It makes practical sense. And he warns, oftentimes, when covetousness or this insatiable desire for more is elevated in our thinking, it actually takes the place of God. We convince ourselves we find contentment in the things we possess. And so it's almost a form of idolatry is what Paul warns us about, where we're turning to these things instead of to God to satisfy the heart. You see how this relates to marriage? If we put on the wrong things, it can be a problem. Of course, Paul adds to the list in verse 8. Look at what else he goes on to, to characterize as a potential problem. He says as you're putting to death these things, you need to also put off anger. Now that's the word that you typically think of when someone loses their cool. Obviously that never happens in a marriage relationship. He says you put off anger. Now we can't Control at times the emotional reaction one might feel. What you do choose to control is now what you do with it. And Paul's point is when you find your heart suddenly being affected by this emotion, you take it off. You don't wear it in a justified way. He adds to anger the word wrath. Now, again, that's not something that we easily identify with. I mean, when was the last time you were wrathful? Well, think rage. Just uh, anger intensified is the idea of the word. He says, you don't put that on. You don't justify that. He says, that, that will be devastating in the marriage relationship, even as it would be devastating in any relationship. To that, he goes even still further. You put off malice, he says. Now, here the word malice could be translated wickedness in some translations. Uh, in a Greek lexicon, I was referring to, in fact, more than one. They actually says this word refers to badness. <laughs> I had to laugh. Oh, we're talking about badness here. No, not in a good way. It basically implies you're acting in a way that is harmful to the other. You put that off. You don't wear that. Slander, he says, you don't put on. Obscene talk from your mouth, you don't put on. I love how Paul describes this to the Ephesians in Ephesians 4.29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. But, this is why I like this reference, because he reminds us, it's one thing for me to stop saying the wrong things. It's something else for me to start saying the right things. He says, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. That's powerful. Sometimes when I'm counseling with a couple that's going through some difficulties, I will take them to Ephesians 4.29, and I, would, I suggest to them, if you'll just begin to practice this, it will help. 
that you stop saying the things that are tearing the other person down and start saying the things that begin to build the other person up. Now, just to be practical, where we have our married couples present here today, why don't you go into this week and every single day of the week you look for at least three opportunities to say something that will build up your spouse? Look for it. And then express it. And you might see God will do something meaningful as a result. He says, no obscene talk from your mouth. And, this isn't surprising, do not lie to one another. Once again, these verses are intended to direct us toward relationships in general. But will you admit to me, has a complete relevance to the relationship that one has with one's spouse? That we need honesty in that relationship. We do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. I mean, how practical is this? You want to strengthen your marriage? Stop wearing the wrong things. Now, Paul, as we have said, emphasizes you can put off the old things when you focus on putting on the, the right things. And in verses 12 and following, he gives us some example of that. Well, think about this in terms of the marriage relationship. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, put on compassionate hearts. Mercy. Compassion is the idea. Put on Kindness. This is a word that emphasizes goodness. You're acting for the good of the other. Put on humility. There's never ego struggles in a marriage, are there? Put on, Paul says, humility. Put on meekness. Now, this is a, a term in our translation. Maybe we don't really understand quickly, it's the word that emphasizes gentleness, a word that emphasizes strength under control. Think of it this way. Uh, my daughter, Rachel, is expecting their second child in April. We're excited about that. But there's something about small babies and infants. Uh, though they have some measure of strength in their arms, they have no control over it. And so with a young child, the young child might slap your face because they don't really have mastery over their own strength. That's the idea of this word. You need to live in a way where your strength is under control. You're not slapping people around. You're responding with meekness, gentleness. And patience, he says, should be characteristic of what we wear. Long-suffering, some translations might have, bearing with one another. Now, this is a phrase that isn't so much kind of repeating the idea of patience as much as it's emphasizing the determination to press forward. That You don't easily give up. You bear, you see, with one another. I guarantee you, if you're going to have a lifelong marriage relationship, there's going to be some of this that brings you through. You bear together through. Paul says that should be what you put on. And 
If one has a complaint against another, now we could say this is never in marriage. No, we can't, but we can pretend. If one has a complaint against another, notice, forgiving one another. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. I've said it already several times. This list is intended to be how we respond to everyone. But do you not appreciate just how practical this is as you relate to your spouse? Forgiveness is necessary. There are different words in the New Testament for forgiveness. Some words refer to erasing or blotting out the offense. Some words describe setting someone free as if you've chained them to the guilt of it and you've set them free from the weight of that. This term, however, that Paul uses is the Greek word charizomai, which emphasizes not so much you erasing or setting someone free as much as you're giving to the person something that they don't really deserve. You're acting with grace toward them. You're forgiving them. Paul says this is how we should be relating. And Jesus is the standard as he has forgiven us. This is how we're relating to the people around us. This is especially how we should be relating to our spouses. See the practicality of this? Paul is saying, okay, these are the things that are present, and above all, verse 14, above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Now, if you want to strengthen your marriage into the week ahead, I would say, look at what Paul's described, recognize what needs to be put off, recognize what needs to be put on, and then relate to your spouse accordingly. Now, I'm going to make some of you uncomfortable, but I thought this would be a helpful exercise as we've come together into the service. If you're here with your spouse, I want you just to turn and face them for a moment, okay? Now, if your spouse isn't here, take out your phone, find a picture. If you're not married, If you're not married, then think in terms of someone that's very important in your life, okay? But if your spouse is here, hello, dear. (laughs) Face your spouse for a moment, okay? And as you look into each other's eyes, listen again to what Paul would say. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones and holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Amen. Amen. You know, what Paul would say... Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. That includes relating to your spouse in this kind of way. Now, as I have highlighted this for you, I don't know what your thoughts are, but when I look at all this, it would always say to me, that's everything we need to know, right? 
I mean, if we lived as husband and wife reflecting these qualities, our marriages are on firm ground. Wouldn't you agree? It's almost as if that's everything that needs to be said. But apparently not. Because Paul then goes on to add two verses of specific application. Listen to what he says. Wives, verse 18, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Now, he's just described how we're supposed to be relating to everyone, but especially our spouses, in ways that strengthen the relationship. But then he comes to these two verses, and it's as if he's saying, now, you also need to remember God's design for the home. See, it's one thing for the husband and the wife, to reflect qualities that will obviously strengthen their relationship. It's something else for us to appreciate that the Creator also had a design for how the home could thrive. What did the Creator uh, teach? Well, if you go to the Old Testament and into the New Testament, you'll find that it's pretty simple. From the very beginning, it was God's intention for the husband to provide a leadership within the home. That was always the creator's design. And as the husband would assume that role, that he would do so for the well-being and the larger good of the home, the marriage. Now that's God's design. Paul, as he writes to this congregation, wants to remind them that you don't want to do those things that potentially disrupt that design. And what jeopardizes that? Well, when there's a struggle or a, a kind of a power struggle for control, who's going to lead your home? Who should be responsible in leading your home? In verse 18, Paul tries to remind those who allow God to speak into the situation, well, wives, your husbands should. He says, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. That they should assume this role for the sake of your home. And that you should support them as they Fulfill this role for the benefit of your family. Now, as they do it, they do it with love, is clearly stated, and they don't do it in a way that embitters or it reflects a harshness. But this is what's necessary for the Creator's design to be fulfilled in the context of the home. I guess what I'm saying, if you look at these two verses, what you need to think about it are roles that God had in mind for a husband and wife to share for the well-being of the family. They're just roles that are necessary. Now, I realize reading what I've just read and saying what I've just said 
clearly puts me outside how many in our culture today would would teach or write about marriage and, you know, they want to imply that, you know, you don't have to have anyone really lead in the marriage. You can be co-leaders. That no one person is in charge. Well, okay, then answer this. When you face a decision where the two of you have differing conclusions, who decides? Someone leads. That's just the nature of facing major decisions. Now, it's great when you together share the same perspective. I rejoice in that. But there will be occasions as you move through life where the two of you will look at a situation through different lenses and you're going to reach a different conclusion. And how then do you respond? You know what Paul would say? You need to remember God had to design for the home. And the design was rather simple. He intended for the husband to lead. He did. Now I realize there may be occasions where it seems as if the husband has abdicated that role for whatever the reason. But that doesn't negate what was intended to be God's plan. Now, if you've been reading through Ephesians back in February, you probably noticed Paul actually discussed this very thing in a much larger context. Let me take you to it because I think it maybe would help you appreciate what I'm trying to describe and so that you don't look at it as if it's intended to be harmful to the woman. Paul writes in Ephesians 5 verse 22, Wives, submit to your own Husbands. Now, let me emphasize that word own. This isn't a, an emphasis on the superiority of the sexes. That's not what Paul is trying to address here. He's not implying that men are better than women and that women need to then be submissive to every man that crosses their path. No, he's describing the wisdom of the creator for the home. And God's design was that the husband would assume a, a role of leadership And the wife then was to be responsive to her own husband's lead. That is his language. Now the word submit is a compound word. It means to place under. It clearly is emphasizing that for the benefit of the home, the husband is allowed to lead. And so Paul says you you realize that. But here's the catch. You're doing it, wives, As to the Lord, not the Lord, your husband, (laughs) the Lord who saved you, that you realize that as a follower of Jesus, that Jesus himself would want us to reflect the wisdom of the Father when it comes to the family. And so you're responding to your husband in this way, supporting his lead, because ultimately you are doing it as unto the Lord. You're trusting the Lord's wisdom. So you respond. Verse 23, it can't be any clearer, for the husband is the head. The husband takes the lead of the wife, even as Christ, here's the point of illustration is the head takes the lead of the church. Now, is there anyone here dis- that disputes that Jesus should be leading the church? I mean, every day we're wanting to 
relate to Jesus for who he is. We want to walk in Jesus. We want to follow Jesus. Well, if that's what we agree on, do you hear what Paul has then just laid out for us? That in the marriage relationship, there's a wisdom that comes from the creator that says that in this dynamic, the husband should be leading in a way that the wife is supportive, just as within the church, those men and women of faith who have trusted in Jesus allow Jesus to lead. Now, I'm not, by saying all this, elevating the husband to the level of Jesus as if we are some Christ figures. I'm emphasizing the illustration Paul's using. He's saying someone has to lead. And so his instruction is let's allow the husband to do that. Allow it to be seen because that's what we see in Christ, his body, and is himself its savior. Verse 24, now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit, should follow the lead. See, I think we've so made an issue of the word submit that we've got it into our thinking that it implies inferiority. No! Someone has to lead, is the point, in order for the family to move in in the healthy direction. He says, no, so you, wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now, before I go on, let me clarify something that maybe some are wondering. Now, he said everything. Does that mean the husband has to be deciding every little thing with regard to how the home functions? Absolutely not. We're talking about direction of the home. Where are you going as a family? I'm not talking about what you're buying at the grocery store, how you're relating to some kind of just minor insignificant decision that crops up in the midst of the day. We're talking about as you're looking at life, you're making decisions that are going to affect the direction of your life. The wisdom of the creator was that the husband was intended to assume that role. We'll say, well, what if the husband tries to lead me in a direction that's outside of what God would ask? We submit as unto the Lord. So if my husband is moving me away from appropriate responses to the Lord, then I follow the Lord would be Paul's instruction. You're not going to allow your husband to lead you into wearing the wrong things. But you see, the point is you're trusting the creator's wisdom. Now, the husband, let's get ready, guys. Here you're thinking, aha, finally. Somebody's telling me I should be leading. Okay, you ready? Paul expands on what that means. Husbands, as you lead, if I might insert... Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Notice his love was self-sacrificing. His love had the larger good of the church in mind. Verse 26, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he, Christ, might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she, the church, might be holy and without blemish. Now hear me say this, husbands. 
Jesus loved his church to the point of sacrifice, and he acted in leading the church toward their own benefit. He would then call us as husbands to lead our homes in the same way. It's not about us elevating our position so that we can be some kind of dictator, always demanding what we want. No, if I understand what Paul's teaching, I look at my home and I'm asking the question, what is the larger need of my family? Lord, help me to know what that is and enable me to lead in ways that benefit my spouse and my family, even if it costs me. Now, there's some debate, okay, where is the greater burden on the part of a wife allowing the husband to lead or the husband before God who's now responsible to lead in such a way that he acts unselfishly for the larger good? Of course, Paul wasn't done. In the same way, husbands should have their should love their wives as their own bodies. Why? Because see, the church is the body of Christ. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. See, there are some voices in our day that say what Paul teaches is out of step with today's society. It's a backward way of thinking. What Paul does, though, however, when he teaches on this, is he takes us back to creation. See, it's rooted in the wisdom's design. So from that point of view, then it, it isn't something that shifts from one generation to the next. It's tied to how the Creator brought things into being. Verse 32, this mystery is profound, he says, and I'm saying that it refers to the church. Now, we can have a great marriage if we're wearing the right garments. You with me? But we can collide, even seeing the, reflecting the right qualities over who's going to lead. And Paul would say, as you're following Jesus, reflecting Jesus, you need to remember God's design for the home. You don't lose sight of it. You remind yourself of that. And as a husband, I'm reminding myself I'm supposed to lead in a self-sacrificial way for the good of my wife my children, my grandchildren for that matter. I, I lead with that understanding. As a wife, I respond to his leadership as flawed and imperfect as it may be at times. I respond to his role, not because he's exemplary, but because I'm called by God to trust the Lord's wisdom. Materially, I guess it's a relevant issue. I mean, do I follow his lead when he's really not leading well? Yes. Now, you don't allow him to lead you into ways that are inappropriate, but ultimately you're trusting in the Lord's design. 
And in love, I hope, you're sharing in such a way where together the two of you grow and discover the path that God has for you. We remember God's design and we remember to dress appropriately. See, if I emphasize God's design and I'm not dressing well, and that'll fall apart too, won't it? You bet it will. It's both that enables the marriage to be the place where God establishes his influence and his presence. One writer, as I was reading this week, commented, you know, if you have children in a home like this, what they see in mom and dad is really the message of the gospel. They see in the father, the husband, a man who's loving his wife and children in a self-sacrificial way and is acting on their behalf, even as Jesus did for us. And they're seeing in the mother, the wife, a disposition of heart that responds to the leadership of the husband, just as believers and followers of Jesus Christ respond to the leadership of their Savior. See, it, it's instructional to the children, if we would allow it. Now, next week, we're going to come back and look at what he says to parents. But see, if this is dysfunctional, then what he has to say about how we relate to our children is weakened. But if our children and our grandchildren see the wisdom of God's design playing out in how we relate to one another in love, then it instructs them in ways that impresses the truth on their heart. So what's uh, our plan of action into the week? I always try to have us think in terms of something practical. How about this? I hope you're already having a daily Bible reading. You're focusing your heart on Jesus. You're learning to allow his peace to rule and his word to reside. I mean, you're, you're just relating to Jesus daily. Okay. What if for this week, speaking to our husbands and wives, what if... Say at dinner time or at a meal that you can share together. As much as, as often as you can this week. Sometimes you can't have every dinner together, so that may not happen every day. But when you've gathered for a meal, open your Bible to Colossians 3. And just read verses 1 through 21. It all relates to your marriage. It relates to your home. Read it. As often as you can this week at a meal. Now, men, don't read it by trying to lay down the law. No. Wives, don't push it in front of them to read it because you want them to lead more than they have. No. As men and women of faith, let's open our Bibles and let's just allow God to remind us of the difference that Jesus can make with us and how it's seen beautifully within our home. You can do that. Let me pray for us. Father, I come to you in the name of the Lord Jesus, thankful, thankful, thankful that you have affected our lives so that we can wear the right qualities. Now forgive us where we have not. Teach us day by day to put on what should be worn. 
Help us to respond to Jesus in ways that that's seen. But specifically this week, dear God, for our married couples that are here today, encourage us to realize how these qualities will strengthen the marriage we value. And as that happens, we can then trust you in the design you have for our home to relate to one another as husband and wife in ways that bring the family forward. Father, where we've allowed a power struggle to exist, I pray humbly in all of our parts, we just love each other in ways that allow you to guide our steps so that we follow your lead ultimately. So Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.